Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson. Presidential candidate Joe Biden made a promise that if he was elected president, his top advisors and department heads would look like America. Once Biden was elected, his dedication to fulfilling that promise of diversity and inclusion became clear. He has nominated the most diverse cabinet in presidential history. And now many of those nominees are being confirmed by the U.S. Senate, while some have dropped out or face obstacles ahead. In honor of Women's History Month, it feels appropriate to spend some time today looking at the female members of Biden's cabinet, who they are, and what they bring to Biden's overall agenda. Our first guest today knows a lot about this topic and co-authored a piece in the Washington Post earlier this year, recognizing the powerful representation of women in Biden's cabinet, but also noting that when comparing America's female political representation to other nations, she says we've still got some work to do. Karen Beckwith is professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University, and she co-wrote that piece in the Washington Post titled... Biden will have more women in his cabinet than any president ever. Other countries still do better. Karen Beckwith, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. And it's lovely to be back in Detroit, a city I lived in for five years. Yeah, that's wonderful. And (laughs) and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, So first, I just want to, you know, what is your overall assessment at this point of Biden's choices for cabinet positions and how those choices reflect that promise that he made to prioritize diversity and inclusion? Um, So let me talk first about that promise. One of the things um, my co-authors and I, Susan Francisquette and Claire Ansley, and I found in our book, Cabinets, Ministers, and Gender, which was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press, we found that the ability of activist women and others to elicit a promise of the kind that President Biden made when he was candidate Biden um, almost certainly guarantees inclusion and representation of women in cabinet. So it's it's uh, because presidents and prime ministers can relatively easily, with very little opposition, construct their cabinets as they see fit. Um, it means that a president or a prime minister who makes such a promise can keep it. And in almost every case, they do. Hmm. So that's the context of the promise. And in regard to that promise, um, President Biden has um, uh, is in the process of forming a cabinet mm-hmm. that should have the highest number of women in cabinet in U.S. history. That would be um, a number five, uh, assuming that Representative Holland is confirmed as Secretary of the Interior. Um, the highest number of women ever in cabinet was four, and that was achieved by um, uh, uh, Barack Obama and by um, uh, George W. Bush, um, as well as Bill Clinton. I do need to say that our research in our book and also on, on which the Washington Post article relies looks um, almost exclusively at the first cabinet formed after an election. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when the media attention is highest. It's a statement of the incoming president. This is what my policy um, platform is going to look like. Here's what I hope to achieve. Yes. So highest number of women at five. This is this will also be the first time. It looks like um, Representative Holland will in fact be um, confirmed. This would be the highest number. It would also be the highest percentage, and it will move the United States for the first time into a cabinet where at least thirty percent, in this case thirty three percent, at least thirty percent of cabinet members are female. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sort of the medium level of representation. There are many democracies and advanced democracies that have had 
not only a gender parity cabinet where numbers of men and women are equal, but have had multiple back-to-back -back gender parity cabinets, um, regardless of the party of the president or the prime minister. Yeah, um, I want to say just a couple of other things um, about um, uh, President Biden's um, cabinet. This will be the first time since uh, George W. Bush's second term where two women of color, two non-white women, will be serving simultaneously in cabinet. Hmm. Um, so in intersectional terms, this is pretty interesting um, that although there have been women in cabinet, um, of course, it's not surprising that most of those women would be white. Um, but it's also surprising that even cabinets that include women of color, those women of color have generally served as the only woman of color in cabinet. Um, and so with Deb Holland and Marsha Fudge, who, by the way, uh, has just stepped away from representing the district within which my university is located. Oh, <laughs> sure. Um, there will be two. Um, so a little shout yeah. out to Representative and now Secretary Fudge. There you go. Um, yeah. And we're actually going to spend uh, quite a bit of time at the end of the show today uh, with uh, Megan Lata Gupta, the founder of Indigenizing the News, to talk specifically about mm -hmm. uh, Deb Holland and what that means for uh, not just women, but especially indigenous Americans here in Michigan and across the country. And something that you said, uh, Karen, that was really interesting in, in that uh, answer uh, was about the ways that uh, activists and, and women on the ground and the 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 ability for them to really make this possible and do the the real hard work of making it possible. Um, Deb Holland is a great example of that. Uh, that you know, this, it's it's very possible that she would not be in this position if not for the real grassroots uh, work that was done to make sure that that happened. And it sounds like she's not the only person uh, in this cabinet that that's the case. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's a, the correct observation. It is really interesting um, to me. We're doing a little bit of work, actually. Um, uh, Susan Francis got my colleague at the University of Calgary and I on representation by race and ethnicity. And um, uh, Native persons in the United States have not in the past been recognized as a politically relevant demographic group for inclusion in the group of persons considered um, sufficiently politically relevant for um, appointment to cabinet. So this is a big sea change mm -hmm. um, in terms of the organization of um, a variety of the uh, Native groups in the United States and also the advancement of Representative Holland. Um, so this is very important. I will note um, that this will also be um, the first time uh, a cabinet has been formed following a first election um, that where there will be um, six non-white cabinet members. So gender aside, in terms of ethnic inclusion, there will be six members of cabinet who are um, not white. And that's a, that's a fairly substantial um, proportion. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to note that Biden's appointments here are groundbreaking, but they also come after President Trump appointed fewer women to his cabinet than any of his previous three predecessors. And that that seems to me like a, a huge contrast. So let me talk a little bit about um, a concept that we identified um, in our book uh, by looking at, so as, as you may know, and maybe it wasn't completely clear in the Washington Post article, we looked at the um, cabinet formation process and both the gendered process and the gendered outcome of cabinet formation process in seven different democracies, Australia, Canada, Chile, Germany, Spain, the United States, and the United Kingdom. And we found um, that Prime ministers and presidents were following um, an informal rule that we identified as what we call the concrete floor. 
And this is the minimum number of women who must be included in cabinet for the cabinet to be seen as legitimate by the American people, by activists and by the mass media. And presidents who appoint or prime ministers who appoint below that number get a lot of criticism. They're actually sanctions um, in terms of public opinion in the media for not doing so. And so um, in thinking about um, former, the, the former president, he did appoint in the immediate post, first post-election cabinet, he only appointed two women. I will note that one of those women was Elaine Chao. And I say too, let me back up for a minute. The concrete floor for the United States until the Trump administration was every member, uh, every president had appointed since 19, better be careful here, I have to look at my data. <laughs> since, since 1993, mm. every president had at least three women in his first post-election cabinet, even mm. for those who had two terms. So three is a concrete floor in the United States. And President Trump managed not to do that. He appointed two, wow. uh, Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chao. Now he then later added Kirsten Nielsen, but that was not part of the first cabinet, uh, the, the first appointments. There was a cabinet reshuffle. Elaine Chao, I will note, is the only Asian American woman who has ever served in cabinet. And uh, currently the Biden first cabinet, unless something changes with the nominees that he's already identified for those 15 cabinet posts, um, this will be the first cabinet in 20 years that has not had an Asian American member in cabinet. Um, I will also note that there's only been one woman who's ever served as a cabinet member who is Latina. And again, this is a cabinet that will have three Latino members of cabinet. And this is, this is a real step forward. And this is very impressive and it shows the power of making um, a, a presidential candidate promise to represent the United States in his cabinet construction. Um, three um, Latinos will serve in, in cabinet and that's very impressive, but there will be no Latinas hmm. um, serving in cabinet. So that's a little bit disappointing. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, that is really interesting. Um, you're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer uh, talking about the number of women who are being nominated for cabinet positions in the Biden administration. I'm speaking with Karen Beckwith, professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. She co-wrote a piece in The Washington Post recently titled, Biden will have more women in his cabinet than any president ever. Other countries still do better. And we want to include your voices in this conversation as well. What do you think of President Biden's emphasis on gender diversity in his cabinet? Are you excited about the number of women taking these positions of power in the federal government? Do you think it's enough? Uh, would, we would really love to hear from you if you're a woman in a position of power. Are you a business or a community leader? What do you think uh, of your position and what it represents to others? And what obstacles have you faced because you're a woman in those positions. Again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave uh, your questions and comments on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Today. And um, Karen Beckwith, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of specific nominees uh, to the to the cabinet. Um, one, we, we couldn't leave out of this show because uh, we, people in Michigan and in our audience know her quite well. <laughs> a newly confirmed Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, uh, was also the first female governor of the state of Michigan. 
Uh, regardless of your opinions about her policies as governor, Granholm really does, I think, embody this idea of trailblazing leadership as well as um, the sexism and misogyny that women in power experience when they reach those positions. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about what uh, Jennifer Granholm sort of specifically represents, um, you know, through her career, but especially as a member of this cabinet. So I think she's she's an excellent example. And I do have to say, sitting in the state of Ohio, where we've never had an elected female governor, mm-hmm. um, I'm quite envious that you have already had two. So um, <laughs> good for you all. Um, I will say that um, uh, Granholm, uh, for um, having been governor of the state, statewide executive, national uh, statewide executive, um, already came into that appointment with not only a lot of political support, obviously, but with the kinds of um, experience that um, we identify as crucial as part of the cabinet formation process. So let me just briefly say there are three major criteria that we've identified that prime ministers and presidents employ when they form cabinets. The first is they look for people who have experience. So we talk about these as experiential criteria. And these include policy, expert, uh, expertise, and experience. And these are crucial. They might not actually be the reason the person's appointed, although that's clearly the case um, in regard to um, uh, Secretary Grantholm. Um, but uh, they are the grounds on which presidents and prime ministers justify their appointments. They're also the grounds on which people criticize appointments. So let me move us back to Ohio for a moment. As soon as um, Representative Fudge was identified as the um, likely nominee for housing and urban development or for any position, she, her, her name was being um, mentioned um, quite early on, she got a lot of criticism as not having sufficient experience, which first of all was not the case um, for someone who had been both the mayor and a representative in one of the major, the second largest urban area in the entire state of Ohio, which is the 11th largest state in terms of population. This seemed a little much. So um, the attacks on women also often come on the grounds of, well, they're not meritorious, they're not experienced, they don't have the policy expertise or the political experience. Fortunately, Granholm was well positioned for that. And for her, I didn't see uh, the kind of criticism that was launched um, against Representative and now Secretary Fudge. Yeah, I mean, and and now just thinking about, you know, uh, Jennifer Granholm's career again, um, I believe first female attorney general of Michigan, then first female governor, and now part of the uh, the largest or the the cabinet with the largest number of women uh, on it. I mean, that is a uh, that is a very uh, interesting resume when it comes to again that trailblazing leadership that we were talking about there. Um, another person that I wanted to bring up was uh, uh, the nomination of Neera Tandon, who uh, Biden nominated to serve as director of the Office of Management and Budget. Now she was forced to withdraw from consideration. And most of the opposition to her nomination sort of centered on social media posts that were critical of Republicans. But there were also some people who said that sexism played a a significant role there. I'm curious how significant you think uh, her gender was and how that all played out. So uh, she was not nominated for a cabinet position. So I just do want to make true. clear, we, we did not look at the sub-cabinets. And, and Biden's record at the sub-cabinet level is already extremely impressive um, in terms of the numbers of women um, and and uh, women of color, women of different backgrounds. Um, that's certainly um, historically impressive. But I will say that sexism has a great deal to do with it. So let me go back for a moment to the experiential criteria that presidents and prime ministers claim to employ when they form a cabinet. And and many of these in appointing women will be defending um, those appointees on those very grounds. But there are very few formal rules about 
what kinds of experience and, and what's required in terms of merit for appointment. So for example, to be uh, Secretary of Energy, one does not have to um, have any particular degree. One doesn't have to have any, none of this is written down. And so the attacks on the basis of merit are often directed toward women. Um, and here we have in the case um, of, uh, uh, of Nera, we have the, um, a woman who was highly qualified and not being able to attack her on grounds of, of experience and insight and capacity um, uh, was attacked on the grounds of social media, which um, uh, I think that's all I need to say about that. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, again, the numbers on the lines is uh, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. I want to go to Brother Ray in Midtown. Brother Ray, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, when you when you talk about uh, preparing women for uh, D.C. politics and, and White House cabinet, uh, you have to look at Michigan. I think Michigan is one of the prime examples and a model when you have a, a woman governor, you have a woman attorney general, you have a woman head of General Motors, you have a woman head of the uh, health department, mm-hmm. you have a woman head of the secretary, the secretary of state, and a host of Michigan nonprofit women leaderships. So when you're saying uh, preparing women for that level of, of politics and that level of governorship, we have to look at Michigan. Michigan is probably a, one of the uh, prime examples of a of a of a of all women leadership in the country. Yeah. So yeah. It's a particular aspect how women are being prepared for that level of, of competency. Brother Ray, I really appreciate that that uh, observation, and thanks so much for listening and calling. And uh, Karen Beckwith. Uh, you know, we we do live in a state here in Michigan that has uh, really, in in a in a relatively short period of time, really uh, seen such a a large influx of women in positions of power serving at the same time. Um, as you no- noted, we are we we have a. a uh, a female governor who was the state Senate minority leader for quite a while. Uh, she is the second woman to serve as governor in Michigan. All of our statewide elected executive positions are all women in Michigan. Um, you know, this is and, and it seems like this it's it's part of a bigger trend throughout the country, although, as you noted, in certain states, uh, not not catching on equally everywhere. Well, let me remind everyone that um, with the Department of Homeland Security, we now have 15 cabinet seats. So a president who wants to find a cabinet um, that is what we would call a gender parity cabinet, where the numbers are equal or as close to equal as you can get. So for our cabinet, would be it would be seven to eight women. The issue is not, um, at this point, are women experienced and ready for this and trained for this? Women have been ready for this for decades. All we need to do is find seven or eight qualified, talented women. And that is not impossible in a country of 325 million persons. So let me just top top of my head here and and I won't have all of these these cases, but in terms of gender parity cabinets, where the numbers of women and men are equal, appointed after a first election by a president or a prime minister, those exist currently in Austria, Belgium, Serbia, France. This is France's um, third president Mm. Uh, since 19, uh, basically 1990s that it has appointed a gender parity cabinet. Spain has a cabinet that has so many women that, that it's almost two thirds of the cabinet is wow. female, super majority. Wow. It's a little hard to justify, frankly. Canada and Mexico both have gender parity cabinets. The United States is the only, the United States is the only country in North America that does not have a gender parity cabinet. So 
I would just say, you know, to President Biden, if some of these future nominees don't come through, please nominate women to replace them. So we can at least get to seven and we'll have a gender parity cabinet. We won't be embarrassed when we go talk to Canada and Mexico. So my point here is that it takes only a few women to um, staff a gender parity cabinet in the United States. Women are highly educated, they're highly experienced, um, not only in terms of holding office at the state and the national level, um, but also in terms of the other kinds of work they do in corporations and labor unions and universities. We certainly have enough women already to staff um, a full cabinet. Um, I'm sure that we could find 15 with very little difficulty. And we are going to talk more about that after a short break. Uh, we will continue this conversation coming up and get more of your calls in as well. Again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. More of my conversation with Karen Beckwith right after this. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson. I'm speaking with Karen Beckwith, professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. She co-wrote a piece in the Washington Post recently titled, Biden will have more women in his cabinet than any president ever. Other countries still do better. And again, if you want to join this conversation and talk about what it means to you to see this historic number of women serving in President Biden's cabinet, uh, you know, what does that signify to you about leadership in this country, about policymaking, about equity? Um, and do you think it's enough? Uh, what more, uh, you know, what, what are you hoping for in terms of doing more in the future? Uh, and again, we'd really love to hear from you if you are a woman in a position of of power, if it's a, a business or a community leader role, uh, what do you think is the? What do you think of your position and what it represents for you? What it represents for others and what obstacles have you faced because you are a woman? Again, the number is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. And I want to start this off with uh, Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to Detroit today. A timely conversation as always. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading your, your guest's uh, column. Uh, recently, I was asked by a very young friend whether the U.S. had ever had a woman as president or whether, in fact, any country. I had to point out to her that our neighbor to the south, uh, Canada, has had a woman as head of government. <laughs> of course, Britain has had two women as head of government. Uh, and I thought about this issue of qualifications and it provoked me to remember a comment that was attributed to Winston Churchill uh, discussing who should be in a cabinet. And he's supposed to have said that you don't need experts in your cabinet. You need thoughtful people who know how to reason and read. But you, you should have experts on tap, not on top. And so, you know, we, we've never required cabinet secretaries to be experts in their disciplines. Well, we wouldn't have had a doctor from Detroit, a secretary of HUD. Hmm. And uh, so this argument that these women are not qualified or gentlemen from California shouldn't be HHS secretary is ridiculous. Hmm. But this is the day we live in. I look forward to reading your guest columns and uh, 
keep up the good work. Ed, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for calling in and those comments. Uh, Karen Beckwith, um, you know, Ed makes a lot of great points there. I, I do, I would say, uh, when it comes to, to expertise, um, I, I also uh, assume that you would say that uh, you also don't have to look very far for women who are experts either, though. I mean, that, that there is not a, it is, it's a false choice. So I think that's a good point. And I want to thank Ed for his um, very helpful comments because there are two other qualifying criteria that we identify in our book. And these are affiliational and representational. By affiliational, we note that presidents and prime ministers appoint persons by and large whom they know, they know well, and can rely on to keep things confidential, to be loyal to the team, um, people that can be trusted. And so affiliational grounds He's my friend. I trust him implicitly. I've worked with her on the National Security Council, and she'll make a great Secretary of State. These are personal relationships that are not used to justify the appointment, but they're crucial for the integrity of the cabinet and its good working. The second is representational, and this is where prime ministers and presidents are um, compelled by informal rules and by politics to appoint cabinets, to form cabinets that include representatives of politically relevant um, demographic groups. So since 1975, if we include the first cabinet that Gerald Ford actually um, constructed, there has been at least one woman in cabinet with no interruption. The last all-male cabinets were appointed by Richard Nixon. And since that time, there has always been a woman in cabinet. This is a, represent- a representational criterion. It would be unthinkable not to have at least one woman in cabinet. And Tony Abbott, a, a former prime minister of Australia, found out what happens when you appoint only one woman to cabinet. He appointed Julie Bishop as his foreign minister and no other woman to his cabinet. And he lasted as prime minister for about a year and a half. So the experiential criteria are those that presidents and prime ministers use to justify their appointment, but it's not the only criterion. In in many ways, it is not the most important criterion. Um, The other two, affiliational and representational, are very, very important. And this is what's important to go back to Representative Holland about her nomination um, as Secretary of the Interior. uh, Native Americans were not on the list of politically relevant groups for inclusion in cabinet until now. Right. And this is an example of an organized group that made that group politically relevant to candidate and now President Biden. So so how likely do you think it will be that that will will become an, an expectation moving forward that they will stay uh, that that indigenous people will stay in that conversation as sort of a, a group that that must be represented? Um, I'm not sure because uh, the United States has a relatively small cabinet. Mm -hmm. So Canada has a cabinet of size 30. There are 30 ministers in the current Canadian cabinet. That means they have to find as many women for their gender parity cabinet as we have in the entire entire positions available in the U.S. cabinet. And keep in mind what I had mentioned earlier. There um, there are no Asian Americans in this cabinet. And my assumption is that we will hear fairly soon from that community. Um, Barack Obama, in his first term, appointed three Asian Americans to cabinet. Um, That was unprecedented. Um, And again, the first cabinet in 20 years that hasn't had at least one Asian American cabinet member. Similarly, although there were three Latinos in cabinet, there's no Latina. And I think women's groups are going to be talking about that. So there may be a little competition here in regard to um, um, room for inclusion in a relatively small cabinet. Now, I will say 
for prime ministers who are heading coalition governments where there's more than one party involved, there's a lot of negotiation that goes on. I do want to say one other thing about um, the representational criteria. We looked at the seven countries that I um, identified, and they have different representational criteria. In Canada, um, every province has to be represented by um, a cabinet minister. There can be no province without a, a, a person from that province sitting in cabinet. Mm -hmm. For Germany in the past, religion um, was uh, a requirement. There could be no all Protestant cabinets excluding Catholics, for example. In the United States, there are um, only two absolute criteria. Well, I want to say two things. One is in all the countries we studied, every single one had sex as a representational criterion. It, it is not the case that an all-male cabinet can be established in the future in any of these countries. That mm. convention, that rule is very, very strong. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I did want to get to the to the election of Kamala Harris as vice president. Um, and, uh, of course, the fact that that is historic in, in multiple ways, uh, obviously not a member. Uh, well, I mean, she's, you know, the, she's the vice president, so uh, not on the same level as uh, the, the cabinet members in many ways. But uh, we've we've already seen a lot of really offensive and misogynistic reactions to her, especially from the far right, uh, given the historical backlash uh, toward women and people of color in positions of power, generally speaking. I'm curious what you expect uh, her role as vice president will mean in terms of promoting diversity and inclusion more broadly speaking. So I think it's important um, that um, she was selected by candidate Biden to be his running mate and confirmed by the uh, party's national convention. And then um, uh, supported by uh, the votes of the American people. I think that's really, really important. Um, I noticed that the president often says in talking about himself, he will add and Vice President Harris. Mm -hmm. And he did that a couple of times last night in his, in his speech. Um, I anticipate that we will see more of the vice president. She's clearly um, a talented, um, experienced, um, uh, excellent, excellent vice president. And uh, she will be the physical embodiment of the diversity of this administration. And that's extremely important for encouraging um, women of color at lower levels to run for, for state office. We had several candidates in the state of Ohio who ran for the house and lost, um, including women of color. Um, so shout out to Desiree Timms. I, I was um, looking at that race very carefully. Um, and so I think that that, that that will be very helpful. I also think as we go across the first um, Biden term that having um, a woman as vice president and a woman of color as vice president, um, as a black woman, as, as Vice President Harris identifies, uh, self-identifies, that this will become normalized. Mm -hmm. um, even now, I think people are not thinking, oh my goodness, when they see a female vice president um, with our current president. I'm Jake Neer. I'm sitting in for Stephen today, Stephen Henderson today on Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm speaking with Karen Beckwith, professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University. She co-wrote a piece in the Washington Post recently titled, Biden will have more women in his cabinet than any president ever. Other countries still do better. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, the number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And uh, we would love to get your comments and your calls in, in, in on this conversation as well. Uh, and, and Karen Beckwith, you know, um, when it comes to 
the there you know the the idea of trying to balance both um, you know giving uh, credit where credit's due, uh, but also in some ways um, you know acknowledging that we are as you said still behind so many other countries and uh, you know every country in our immediate vicinity here in in North America. <laughs> um, you know what you know talk about that like you, you know when we talk about this uh, what should we be thinking about when we're trying to give credit to um, the Biden administration for for uh, you know making these selections but also um, making sure that that we are uh, still talking about it in a way that acknowledges that we're we're still behind so that's a good question um, and I think I want to answer that by pointing to the things that we found in our book don't matter in terms of um, women's inclusion in cabinet. So we found that cross-national variation in the percentage of women um, appointed to cabinet across those seven countries can't be explained by the type of political system. Is the state unitary or federal? Is it presidential or prime minister Prime minister or parliamentary? It makes no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the number of selectors or veto players? So in the United States, there are actually uh, one selector, the president, and then a veto player, the Senate. So the Senate has to confirm the nomination. It makes no difference if there's nobody else who has to say beyond the prime minister or president, or if there's several actors who have a say in the appointments. Um, or even the individual characteristics of, uh, of the selectors. Uh, we find that it doesn't really make a lot of difference in terms of whether or not the president or prime minister is from a right of center party or a left of center party. So party ideology makes little difference, at least in our findings. And it also makes no difference in terms of our findings in the countries that we studied, whether or not they are male or female. So a prime minister who's a man or a woman, there's no difference in terms of the percentage of women generally across these cases uh, in terms of women's appointment to cabinet. I will point to work by Tiffany Barnes at the University of Kentucky and Diana O'Brien at Rice University who have done some work that suggests maybe female um, prime ministers and presidents do a little better than this, but they're working with a different database and many, many more countries. What we found was that the differences across country depend upon what the qualifying criteria are. So is it just sex and race and ethnicity as it is in the United States, or does it include religion and region and some kind of party or coalitional balance that may make things a little more complicated? But secondly, it depends on how the selector, the president or the prime minister uses his political agency and autonomy to exploit the flexibility in the qualifying criteria. So there has to be a willing prime minister or president who does this. Again, activists can um, leverage those qualifying criteria by asking the candidate to make a promise during an election. Mm. Really quickly, I want to get Rebecca in Detroit here on the on the phones. Rebecca, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Um, so I just really wanted to say that I appreciate this conversation um, because, like, representation is so important, and it just reminds me of when um, Tammy Duckworth was the first. Uh, female sitting representative who was pregnant and she like had to figure out maternity leave, you know? And so it's like, you don't force the issue. And this is like a thing that like every woman who wants to have a child has to consider, like, what am I going to do for maternity leave? So Mm. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Really appreciate you uh, listening and sharing that here on Detroit Today. Uh, Karen Beckwith, uh, we got to let you go here, but what is, uh, you know, just uh, I'll let you have the last word here. What, are, what, should, what should we all keep in mind and take away from this conversation? 
So we should look forward to the next presidential election. It won't come soon, but as it comes in this country, we should make sure that we make both candidates promise that they will support, that they will appoint a gender, they will form a gender parity cabinet. Uh, seven or eight women in cabinet will do it. Seven or eight men in cabinet will do it. There's no reason not to. Um, we have very talented people in this uh, country. And that's uh, a promise that um, an elected president can keep. Karen Beckwith is a professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University, and she is the author of the 2019 book called Cabinets, Ministers, and Gender. Karen Beckwith, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Detroit Today. You're very welcome. It's great to be back in Detroit. Coming up, we will talk specifically about one of, uh, of Joe Biden's nominees, Representative Deb Holland, and what her nomination for Interior Secretary means for Indigenous Americas. That's next on Detroit Today.